1: MCIE.
2: I hear often from practitioners when they are recommending kids for supports, right? They see it from the vantage point of, you know, well, um, I can't do very much with this kid. I can't do any more. Somebody else has got to help this kid. Let's just give them some extra support, right? And they're coming from a place of like, I can't do any better, so let's just hand them over to somebody, right? And the concern that we have to, and the research has painted, is what is used in the imagination of that practitioner to make that determination? Right. What are the uh, the the anchors or the hallmarks that they're using to kind of sort of frame
1: that? Hello and welcome to season eight, episode seven of the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. I'm your host, Tim Viegas. This podcast features conversations and commentary with thought leaders in inclusive education and community advocacy. Think inclusive exists to build bridges between parents, educators, and disability rights advocates to promote inclusion for all students. That's right. Y'all all All means all to find out more about who we are and what we do go to thinkinclusive.us the official blog of MCIE and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Guess what? Y'all we did it. Our patrons are in double digits. Let's keep it going and add some more. It is super easy. Go to patreon.com slash podcast to become a patron today. Your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and the promotion of the think inclusive podcast. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. So today we talk with Dr. Eddie Fergus of Temple University. We discuss the disproportionate number of students of color being identified in special education and what we can do about it. We review how restorative practices might be used in inclusive schools and how the biggest barrier to inclusion might be who we think can teach students with disabilities. Be prepared to unpack those shopping carts of our minds. Stick around after the break, our interview with Dr. Eddie Fergus. Right. Today on the podcast, uh, we would like to welcome Dr. Eddie Fergus, who is an associate professor of urban education and policy at Temple University. Eddie is a former high school teacher, program evaluator, and community school program director. Uh, his current work is on the intersection of educational policy and outcomes, with a specific focus on Black and Latino Boys' Academic and Social Engagement Outcomes, Disproportionality in Special Education and Suspensions and School Climate Conditions. Dr. Fergus, thank you for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invite. I'm excited by this. We were really excited to have you on because, um, you know, disproportionality is a complicated topic. Mm -hmm. And... I certainly haven't researched it for a decade, you know, for over a decade uh, or, or decades. I'm not sure how long you've been doing it. Uh, but when I asked our staff at MCIE, who can we talk to about, about disproportionality? They were like, ooh, ooh, Eddie Fergus at Temple. And so I said, okay, well, we'll reach out. And you were so kind to come on and, and talk. So um, our listeners are mostly uh, educators, but we have parents uh, and some disabled advocates Um, who listen, and they may not know the ins and outs of disproportionality or the term. So I'd really love if you would start us out with, you know, how would you describe this term, disproportionality? That's great.
2: I mean, I appreciate, I think, you know, uh, I love the the audience that you have, such a great diversity of folks that uh, participate. Um, And I think you're right. You know, we got to start first with kind of contextualizing the terminology. You know, at its core, just in terms of the language, disproportionality is really trying to articulate this idea that um, there is a absence of a proportional representation of a group. Right. So like if you have X percent of a group, let's say you're 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 10 percent of a particular population. Let's say 10 percent is is Latinx. Then you want to if you're going to look at a particular area, you know, let's say housing or whatever, you want to for there to be a proportional representation that 10% of Latinx families, let's say, have an opportunity to get good housing, you know, and so disproportionality in particularly how it's been framed in in specifically around special education and suspension is we want to understand and want to make sure that there is a proportional representations of kids in these different types of practices. And so when we identifying disproportionalities, particularly in special ed and suspension is, we are paying attention to where we are seeing an overrepresentation, right? An over-proportional representation of a group and where we're seeing an under-representation of a group, right? So if we're, you know, if a particular population, let's say, you know, a black student population is, you know, around 16, 17% of the, enrollment across the country, then we should see a proportional representation of them in special education, around 16 to 17 percent, you know, presuming that all things being equal, right, that we all have an equal opportunity and also of, of, of equal opportunity in terms of practices that were uh, that, that's, that are available to us, um, and also the, the nature to which, you know, disabilities are not bound to a particular group, but rather it is, everyone has, uh, is differently abled. Um, and there's nothing specific to the, the genetic disposition of a group that you're going to see a preponderance of these patterns, you know? So, uh, so that's what disproportionality is really sort of at its core, really trying to articulate, um, and framing for us.
1: That's interesting that you talk about proportions because in our work in inclusive education, there's this idea of natural proportions. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if, if that term has come across Mm -hmm. your literature, the way that you think about in classrooms, something that advocates are, are, are trying for is in a school that has 10% of, you know, students with disability or a community Right. Uh, of, of students with disabilities that are around 10%, we wouldn't want an overrepresentation of students with disabilities in one particular classroom. So right. for instance, you have you, know, self-contained special education classrooms where 100% of mm-hmm. students uh, have disabilities or IEPs. And then right. you have quote unquote inclusion classrooms mm-hmm. where there about 50% of those students have uh, an identified disability. Um, and so one of, the, one of the things that I'm really excited to talk to you about is how to think about the intersection between, um, you know, disproportionality of, you know, uh, black and brown students, but also disabled students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, why, why has it been that way? And mm-hmm. is there anything that we can do to fix it? Right, right, exactly.
2: Well, I think what's interesting around this um, this area of focus is, um, and the research really has um, has been so diverse and really sort of laying this out, is that there's a couple of intersecting realities that are happening at the same time. One is that there is a dynamic of how we have historically imagined what it means for an individual to be in- differently abled, right? And Um, What are the surrounding conditions to which we perceive that difference in ability has emerged from and where do we place them? You know, so there is a a way. So there's a uh, it's a, a dynamic of bias that lives within that facet of what's happening. There's also the the facet of bias that's also surrounding uh, race, ethnicity, language, gender—that is also at play, right? In particular, if you know, we think about the ways in which we consider, um, uh, but amongst particular racial and ethnic groups, you know, there's a long history in the U.S. and I should say globally. of of this eugenics argument, right? This notion that there's something about particular groups that makes them predisposed to lower cognitive abilities, right? And so, so you have this sort of element of sort of racialization bias that exists among racial and ethnic groups. You see the same thing around language ability. And you sort of couple those things together, right? So this bias around ability, truly able, and as well as racism and uh, ethnocentrism and ways in which we sort of codify gender—that they—it's almost like this sort of perfect storm in particularly around disproportionality um, and disabilities is that it's it becomes yet a a, a space in which uh, we are um, we've developed sort of further ways in which we kind of connect this 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 expectation this idea that um that part of sort of the inability sort of lack of cognitive abilities that live within particular racial ethnic groups is you know is further supported by our bias about ability levels and where that comes from right and in particularly that sort of that, uh, that 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 question of like where did this come from, and we're con- in some instances we are um, not just in um, in very limited sets of research that you know that has done some of this, but also I think in terms of people's sort of day to day lives that they make these connections regarding this idea that this disability must be connected to something, right? This must be. I mean, I keep seeing these black boys in in uh, self-contained classrooms, or I see these Latinx kids. So there's got to be something about the population, right? And whether folks have, uh, uh, you know, a scientific background to justify, to explain that, it's something that they have uh, generated from their own sort of lived experience of continuously seeing it, that they start making this marriage, this braiding together of these ideas. And so, so what, what's, you know, what we have to contend with in this the issue of disproportionality, particularly around special education, is the need to both dismantle our bias about being differently abled and our bias about race, ethnicity, gender, language ability.
1: Um, I, I wonder if, if you could speak to this idea of the lens at which we view these differences, right? Um, because mm. what we are consistently seeing is the conversations around equity, specifically racial equity, mm-hmm. are so right. Right. are so connected to the conversations we've been having in the disability community mm. you know, for as long as you know we've been right. doing this work. Um, but what has not been... Um, present as far as I can tell is those communities working together Mm -hmm. uh, to dismantle those biases. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm hopeful that conversations like this and Mm -hmm. future ones can connect the dots between, between that, because what I'm hearing you saying is, we already have these preconceived notions about race, you know, and we already have these preconceived notions about disability. Um, and we're used to framing it in a way that says there's something wrong with, you know, black people because they score lower on cognitive tests, you know, or that there's something wrong with disabled people because you know, and, you know, pick, pick whatever it is. So is it just a matter of how we're viewing the, you know, I'm not, mm. I don't want to even say that it's a problem, you know, how we're viewing these differences. Is it just mindset or is mm. there something else at play? Mm. That's a great
2: question. So, I, you know, so I heard a couple of things. So the first on one hand, one of the things that I am always very mindful of as it connects to broader equity Right? So the idea of equity in of itself is uh, you know, we're trying to, I always talk about equity as a terrain, a conceptual terrain that allows us to consider what are the ways in which we are uh, the manifestations of the different isms that exist in our society, racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, how they kind of, the texture of how it exists in our society. Um, and being able to see how it um, manifests within our social institutions like education, right? So equity provides us this conceptual terrain. It's almost like this, you know, like this, 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 uh, this box of sand that allows us to really sort of, um, to really sort of muck through and make sense of how these elements of isms, right, end up showing up in our practices. And so within there, you know, in order for us to kind of muck around in that sand, we have to be clear around sort of how all these things kind of intersect and how they kind of braid together. So my work around disproportionality in special ed and suspension, and I also include in there gifted AP and honors um, and, uh, and its consideration also within sort of disabilities is recognizing that this is the sand we get to play in that helps us to practice to understand, how these things actually manifest right so for example in special education you know there is this the that tension that i described earlier in terms of you know this bias around differently abledness and the bias that we have about racism and gender and what have you right um special education is a a particular way in which Um, It gets organized to help support itself, right? So some of it is organized by the mindsets that that gets carried into it, right? It's this idea of, you know, so for example, I hear often from practitioners when they are recommending kids for supports right they see it from the vantage point of you know well um i can't do very much with this kid i can't do any more somebody else has got to help this kid let's just give them some extra support right and they're coming from a place of like i can't do any better so let's just hand them over to somebody right and the concern that we have to and the research has painted is what is used in the imagination of that practitioner to make that determination right what are the, the 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 anchors or the hallmarks that they're using to kind of sort of frame that, you know, and some of it has to do with sort of how they kind of understand, let's say on the behavior front, how they may understand particularized behaviors that kids are demonstrated. You know, practitioners are getting to use. And and I keep reminding, I keep using um, this analogy, which is that practitioners are coming into schools um, with their own shopping carts filled with their lived experiences and those lived experiences are giving them uh, a sense of how they understand behaviors, how they understand language use, how they understand sort of social interactions. And they're going to use sort of their own sort of those, those things in their shopping carts to kind of make sense of when they see a kid behaving in a particular way you know uh, you know if they're if they're seeing a you know a kid who who uh, uh, abruptly has or from their vantage point sees an abrupt sort of Um, outward display of a particular behavior, right? Their bucket of experience, their basket of experience in their shopping cart is may draw them to a question of what's wrong with you um, versus asking the question. So tell me what brought you to the behavior, right? And which is a very different place of departure of experiences that we would, you know, an individual may have. And so part of what we have to get into the, we have to understand is that, yeah, there's this mindset that is filled and is predicated based on the shopping carts of lived experiences that individuals are bringing to the table and the ways in which we have also at times taken those mindsets to organize the types of practices that we do, right? You know, um, you know one of the sort of uh, an important, you know, elements of, um, uh, of response to intervention that was included in um, the 2004 reauthorization of IDEA was this language around the, you know, the permission to be able to say we're not going to um, we're not going to use a wait to fail approach before we provide, you know, um, scientific and uh, and uh, um, and well resourced supports for our kiddos, and so this is an opportunity, you know, to um, to really sort of disrupt the system that gave permission for the idea of, you know, well, if the kid keeps failing, I'm just gonna wait around till they're failing enough and then I'm just gonna shepherd them off to another system, right? There's there's an embedded mindset that gave permission for that to be the orientation for how we do this, right? Versus what's now, you know, expected, which, and I say expected, it's not, it is, though it's been in the on the book since 2004, it is. I still st- struggle with how I run into practitioners who are like, "Wow, did you hear about this new thing called RTI?" And I'm like, "What? It's been on the books for a long time, you know." But they're but the fascination is the that you know they're getting, they're having to um, have a system that has been organized, predicated on particular mindsets, right? So we have to do that work of. Um, And that's why it's sort of the work that I get to do, the applied research work that I get to do is really attentive to dismantling that, yeah, that there are ways in which our institutions operate that are highly problematic and sustain sort of particular orientations to how we are serving our kids. And we have mindsets that give permission for those practices to stay the way they are. Um, And we have to work on both. Both tracks of work have to be occurring simultaneously, particularly given the fact that around these issues of disproportionality, particularly around race, ethnicity and language, is that, um, you know, the ways in which we see, you know, one of the things I tell school districts all the time is, you know, you don't really need uh, uh, outward examples of racism, sexism, you know, language, you know, uh, ways in which we discriminate against language from the broader society, because we cultivate our own, um, data of bias within our schools. Right. So every time we continue to, um, to see particular groups of kids in our classrooms, right. If we keep seeing boys in most, uh, you know, in self-contained classrooms, we're feeding our own bias. Right. So we're, it's almost like we have our own sort of um, information sort of hub that is being added to all of our shopping carts to kind of keep reproducing that same mindset. You know, and so that's why so there has to be sort of this close attention to the work that we get to do around developing this equity lens has to really be this conceptual terrain where we are going to get to practice to um, understand how these isms show up in our, our, our institutions and in our practices, because that's the stuff we've got to fix. Um, and, and also, and I will say, but that's the hardest part of the work, right? Because I can, I always say, I always tell districts, I said, I know how to help you reorganize your systems, but it is the mindset side of it that we, that is going to be the long-term work that you're going to have to uh it's not going to be like you know you're just going to do one diversity class and for everybody a five-hour you know keynote and you're good right you got to undo the stuff right it's it's crazy you got to undo the stuff that's living in people's shopping carts and people are at times are wedded to those things because it's like they have they you know they're things that they remember from their own childhood so it's like well My parents always told me not to see color. And I, I believed in that. And it's, you know, and it's like, so to unpack that and replace that takes work.
1: This conversation is blown by. So I want to make sure, um, we get in. Uh, we get in one of these questions about uh, restorative practices. Um, yeah. So, how does res- well, Eddie? If, if you ask me, Tim, what's restorative practices? Mm-hmm. I just know that it's a, it's probably a good thing to do, but I couldn't tell you yeah. what it is. So, mm-hmm. how does that nebulous term because Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if there is a this is restorative practices that there may be or there may not be, and you can tell us. But how does that fit into this equity Mm -hmm. work in our schools?
2: Right, that's a great question. You know, so you know, my working understanding of restorative practice and restorative justice, Mm -hmm. right, is the idea that, um, you know, when we're thinking about sort of, um, uh, Sort of transgressions or sort of issues that have emerged between two people, and we have to be cognizant that it's not just a matter of being attentive to the behavior of what happened, and disciplining that behavior, right? And, and I'm going to put that disciplining aspect. I'm going to put that to the side for a moment, but it, there has to be a a substantive attention to the to recognizing that there is a. Harm or hurt that has happened in in terms of that interaction, right, or whatever has transpired between those two individuals, that there has to be clarity around um, understanding what that hurt is about and um, beginning the process of repairing that that hurt, that harm, right, and or that relational sort of aspect of what's transpired um, in, in a way that the that both set of individuals are able to find a means to sort of, um, uh, to continue moving forward, right? Uh, because there's in some ways, and this is sort of my own sort of working understanding of it, that it can create a level of um, arrested development when there is an, an opportunity to really sort of um, talk through, deal with, contend with what's transpired and finding a, a ways of repairing it. You know, I think about a colleague who was talking to me about how, um uh how they were doing restorative practices work in a um in the uh, in, uh, in a in a, in a uh, prison system where they would have individuals who had caused harm to a family right where they either you know somebody passed you know and uh, the ways in which they went through a, a restorative process of talking with the family members of the individuals you know and and finding their ways of repairing what they could in relation to the harm that transpired. And I I always think about that because it's such a a powerful way in which to kind of consider, you know, of of not allowing sort of this this idea that we treat this behavior or whatever transpired as something, as an event that happened and we need to uh, punish, chastise what happened um, and not give ourselves an opportunity as human beings to really consider you know, you know, what is this doing for um, this relationship that I have with this individual? You know, what are the ways in which we can help repair it um, to, to, uh, to, to help support and also to, to minimize the potential of arrested development that may happen for those two individuals? So knowing that, you know, the way in which I, you know, the, the significance of restorative practices within schools is the potential of it reorienting the ways in which we are supporting kids when these misbehaviors do occur, right? Rather than going to a punishment orientation, right? Towards kids. It's like, you know, you know, um, you know, instead of getting fixated on the kid who kicks you in the shin, you know, um, getting fixated on punishing them for kicking you in the shin uh, or solely getting fixated on that. And presuming that I'm going to send them to in-school detention or I'm going to send them to ex- other exclusionary suspension um, practices. Uh, that I also I ask you know. So tell me what brought you to that behavior, and as well as you know how do we begin repairing what transpired? You know the person who got kicked, how they experienced it, and what it meant for them. Um, but also finding ways in which the individual who ex- who who did the behavior to. Um, to have an opportunity to develop a level of behavior modification that allows them to express whatever concern they may have that led to that behavior to showcase it in a different way, you know, um, uh, and, and finding sort of that balance. And I think restorative practice has the potential of doing that within the context of schools. Um, but I have to say, I think there's been, and I've heard this from a variety of practitioners around the country, that they're worried about restorative practices being instituted in the Black and Brown schools, particularly as a way to um, to contend with um, uh, specifically Black and Brown populations. Right? It is a uh, a strategy to um, uh, you know to to kind of uh, force them into sort of this. Um, into this particularized box of you need to get a restorative practice sort of circle going on in terms of, to re, um, and, you know, and they're worried about sort of, uh, you know, and it's been interesting because I I, I I get what they're coming from in terms of the potential of restorative practices being codified as a strategy for black and brown populations, you know, and, and uh, I'm not clear if that's you know if that's the case, but I I share and I understand I, I get their concern because I think we have history has taught us the ways in which um, way, things like that have occurred where you know they they become you know like we see it in special education right where particularly particular identification categories have been informally situated in such a way that are, are are codified for particular groups and others are not, right? So we see the differences around, you know, who's getting identified around um, autism and who's not, right? Who's who's being identified as an emotional just an ED identification, emotional disturbance, um, and who's getting codified as um, ADHD, right? And what are the criteria that are being used and for whom and and how and um, and that's that's alarming, you know, and, and so I get the, the, the concern around, you know, um, being mindful of where restorative practices are being implemented. Sure.
1: Sure. Um, it seems to me that it could be a, a tool that is, Mm -hmm. that is under the larger umbrella of multi-tiered systems of support. Right. And, Uh, you know, blurring the lines between special and general education to actually just being education. You know, yeah, this is how we support kids.
0: It Mm -hmm. doesn't
1: matter if you have an IEP or not an IEP. It's just, this is how you support. Mm -hmm. So thank you for speaking to that. Um, What do you think is the biggest barrier to inclusive education?
2: Mm -hmm. You know, so I think on one hand, is the fact that um, we have to keep working on framing it as needed, as being inclusive, right? So the idea that it's um, you know we're all differently able. Period. Period. You know, and but the <clears throat> the 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 barrier that lives within that is this a presumption that there is something about. Um, uh, not only sort of unique that is specific to particular groups, but also the presumption that there's only certain adults who are going to be able to actually work with that population. Right. And so, so there's so much of our process and uh, of how we do education that continues to feed that differently abled needs to be treated differently abled and thought about and, and, and enact, enacted that way. Right. So for example, you know, the fact that in teacher prep programs, you know, um, there isn't as um, there isn't a, a level of requirements around taking several classes around special education. Right. It's at times when it, when it is required, it's a one off course. Right. Um, and at times it, it finds itself to operate more on the legal framing of special education and not in terms of the practice and the methodology. Right. And um, so because I'll hear students come out of those courses, I'm like, well, I understand the law, but but can I understand sort of like, how do I need to think about some terms of methodology? Or how do I, you know, like, what does this mean for my pedagogy? You know, like, that's where we need to live, you know? So I think we kind of set that up. So by the time, you know, individuals become teachers and they're in the classrooms and um, that it creates this sort of, it continues to bifurcation right? That you're a general ed teacher and you're a special ed teacher. Um, and you have this, you know, what I hear from special ed experts all the time is that there's a presumption of the the magic dust that special educators have and they do something. And all of a sudden kids with who are differently abled are able to operate. I'm like, and they'll say, we don't have anything special. We just got very targeted training that everybody's privy to everybody can get it, you know? So, so I think there's, you know, that's an element that I see as as maintaining sort of this distinction of general ed and special ed as living in two different worlds. And and, uh, the the idea of the the other issue around inclusive education is the degree to which um, that it is something that takes away from what's happening in school settings, right? Um, The idea that, you know, um, you know, I remember a school district years ago that part of a way of getting more inclusive classrooms in the schools in their school districts is that they offered additional dollars to principals if they would add inclusive classrooms in their schools. And I'm like, and and I get why they had to do it to to really try to push inclusion, Mm -hmm. right? But the fact that you had to incentivize it that way, right? It it in of itself sort of continues sort of this um, this notion around like it's an extra burden or you need to be um, sort of paid paid off. I mean I know that's not what they were doing, but it just it 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 really leaves sort of a continuing bad taste of sort of how we are needing to understand and, and supporting our kids.
1: All right, fantastic. Will everyone follow Eddie Arce uh, Eddie Fergus on mm-hmm. Twitter at Eddie yeah. Arce? <laughs> I'm not saying that right. I'm, I'm editing that one. <laughs> Follow Eddie on Twitter. Yes. There you go. All right. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Anchor app. And while you're there, give us a review so more people can find us. Have a question or comment? Email us at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Pamela P., Veronica E., Kathleen T., Mark C., and Sarah C. for their continued support of the podcast. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities, Learn more at mcie.org. We will be back in June with two episodes. We'll talk with Wyatt Aroke, 2020 Maryland Teacher of the Year, and Melissa McCullough, the director of an inclusive public preschool program in Illinois. On the blog, make sure to check out Five ableist Phrases You Need to Stop Using Immediately. And as always... Thanks for your time and attention. Until next time, remember, inclusion always works.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.